0: welcome back to the history of south africa podcast with me your host des latham this is episode 114 we are going to hear about a man called john aliff a man who's gone down in the annals of south african history about as mixed as a box of smarties His mission station at Butterworth across the Kai River had been a place of refuge for the Mfengu people, a mysterious group of refugees who had left northern Zululand during the times of Zuide, and over the next 20 years had been buffeted from place to place like the chosen people of Israel, finally arriving in the green rolling hills alongside Butterworth mission, where they heard the biblical messages from men in black like Aleph, and these resonated. Weren't they the same, these people who'd been kicked out of their land by the Zulu pharaohs and then sent from pillar to post, first into the hinterland through what we now know as the Free State, then down the side of the Basutu, finally wedged alongside Hinsa of the The Tamakosa chief gave them protection. Thousands eventually settled, and Nguani people, the Zizi, and others had found their home. But things were unstable. Next door in the ceded territories, Albany, the former zoo felt. Along the Amatolas, in the Kai River ravines, the British and the Rarabe Kosa were fighting the Sixth Frontier War. The Fengu were in danger. Hinser had disapproved of Aleph's proselytizing. These survivors of the Mfitani were his dogs, as he referred to them, not for the missionaries to convert in totality. They were his people applying his rules. Aleph was warning themfengu that they were becoming Hinsa's slaves. He was happy to have more people arriving. Unlike modern republicans in the USA, Hinsa saw the arrivals as an opportunity. They would pass through a period of clientship, similar to how the Amakosa had earlier thought the Khoi and even the Boers would then become fully Khoza. Mfengu were also useful because they had developed a culture on the move of being productive and Hintze had managed to distribute them through his Traleka people like cheap immigrant labor. Cheap as in free, as in slaves. Hinsa, of course, would not see them as such, but Aleph would, and thus the die was cast between Hinsa and Elif. The Mfingu were ironsmiths back in their home in northern Natal. Their ancestors had smelt metal for 1,500 years, since just after. A.D., and they knew how to farm tobacco and were disliked by some inside that Xhosa for these skills. They also collected cattle quickly. They were identifiable. Just because they were of Bantu origin did not make them cause. Once more, the indefatigable colonists and the inability at times to tell one black person from another was to lead to unfortunate mistakes in the coming decades. First, though, this group of Mfengu began to resent their clientship, oral history of honorable survival, surviving adversity, with their links to the Tlubi, the Bele, the Zizi, the Nguani, now they were being treated like, hence dogs. When he referred to them as his dogs, he did not mean it as maliciously as it sounds now. Dogs were useful and are trustworthy. They had Ancient links to Amuzak, the dogs had made the migration from central West Africa thousands of years before with the first farmers who moved steadily south to colonize koi and sand lands. So dogs were intricately woven into ancient African society. The Amat-Kozik view was that they were useful. These days the concept of calling someone your dog is deeply insulting. The missionaries viewed the phrase from a Eurocentric point of view, and so did the Mfengu who began to chafe under Qozo rule. Hintzer thought of these people as half Qozo already by the time the missionaries were converting these Mfengu in, in large numbers, with the tale of Moses resonating so powerfully in the own oral history. Elif realized he had a ready-made congregation after so much frustration trying to convert the Amatoso, who largely ignored his message. Here were people who accepted the Eucharist, the baptisms, Father-Son, and Holy Spirit narrative. According to the established traditions that predated the colonials, how dare these people pitch up and interfere was the general feeling amongst the Amat Qoza. Hinsa was enraged. He was paramount chief of the Qoza and here were these skinny bearded men in black who seemed to have the power to single-handedly convert the Mfengu into rebels. One Sunday, Hinsa popped into Butworth to see a service for himself and watched in horror as Aleph baptized the Mfengu by throwing water over them. How dare Aleph throw water on my dogs, he thundered. I will make him take it off, and then I will kill him. At first, Aleph thought he could use some kind of calm Christian logic to wriggle out of the killing business, but the Sixth Frontier War was now aflame, and he was the last missionary left in the field, and Hinsa was determined to knock him off. Aleph began collecting intelligence for the British around this point, then managed to obtain a commitment from the Mfengu leaders that they'd stay out of the war. The possibility was good, thought Aleph, that the British would send an army over the Kai and Hinsa was very much in their sights. One night Hinsa's wife Normsa arrived at Butterworth and told Aleph to get his flock to begin singing hymns. That was to cover her message. She whispered in his ear, There's a snake in the grass and you will not see it until you tread on it. Take warning and go. Aleph had been planning to leave, following the traders who had already fled to a Wesleyan station forty miles north of Butterworth, and he set off soon after this warning, carrying his books, herding his livestock. In Sir Julie arrived at the now empty mission station and demolished it, breaking the large bell that had summoned the converts to prayer, smashing it, a symbolic last gong. The shattered bell was also the shattering of relationships. The missionaries who had arrived in Africa with their theories and their religious courage of conviction had found their convictions collided with reality. The Amakosa did not convert easily, and now they were killing settlers, burning churches, threatening men of the cloth with death. Simultaneously, the settlers' baleful glare fell upon the missionaries, two missionaries in particular. James Reed, who had married into the koi, and a humanitarian called John Philip, and his son-in-law John Fairburn. The Grahamstown Journal published what could be called a hard-line position against Xhosa and blacks in general. As Fairburn criticised frontier settlers and the authorities for their treatment of the Khoi and the Xhosa, thus driving them to war, the newspaper's view was somewhat different. Remember, Philip had tried to mobilise British authorities to take action to protect Coy and Cosa workers. As early as 1818, he joined a delegation to investigate the conduct of Cape colonists. By 1822, he was appointed superintendent of the London Missionary Society's stations across southern Africa. He agitated for the abolition of slavery. The Boers did not like him for that. He lobbied inside Britain on Coy and slave behalf. His recommendations were adopted by the House of Commons, but back home... This drove settlers into paroxysms of vitriol. By 1828, Philip was in Southern Africa once more, and managed to get his ordinance fifty passed, granting the Khoi free rights to move around the colony. To offset his views, Grahamstown Journal editor Robert Godlinton published fierce columns attacking the missionaries, particularly Philip, Aleph, and Reed. Philip was the main target, and Godlinton wrote of him. He had avowed himself as the champion of the colored classes. He had set himself to the task of proving to the world the flagrant injustice of the whites towards them. He has brought to bear all the resources of a powerful and active mind, but a most false and partial estimate has been made of the colonial character. The voice of the settlers, Garlington, was making a point that was thoroughly believed by the majority of white settlers. How dare these intellectuals try and convert black South Africans when they were obviously beyond saving. They were not going to be anything more than hewers of wood and drawers of water. Not all people who arrived in South Africa during the 1820 settler flood believed this, however. There were many others who frowned on Godlinton's somewhat loose attention to the facts. Perhaps one of the more interesting is a soldier, as soldiers often tend to be, as they see reality a little more clearly than civilians. They are also less likely to be threatened by points of view because of their fighting skills. Proper professional soldiers who are not politically biased are not afraid of arguing complex matters. Charles Lennox Stretch, for example. He had met James Reed's part-coy son, James Reed Jr., and had heard a captain of the 55th Regiment called John Boys threatening to kill Reed Jr., these men seem to thirst for his blood, wrote Stretch. It was these missionaries who'd caused the Matrosa now to rise up and attack, at least that's what the settlers believe. Godlinton's views and those of the settlers grew to blame the missionaries directly for the Sixth Frontier War. If they'd just left the blacks to be blacks and the whites to be whites, everything would be fine. These intellectually challenged color code experts who live amongst us today are cut from the same cloth as Captain Boy's. The Bauke boys were insistent that Reed should be strung up from the nearest tree, having caused the war. Others knew the truth, and one of these was Stretch. The settlers signed an affidavit swearing that Reed had called on the amat cause to fight for their country. It's the ultimate insult to suggest that a warrior people like the Kozza somehow needed an outsider to tell them when to fight. Makoma and Charlie knew it was time. The missionaries were mere vassals in their kingdoms. They were like bearded court jesters, tolerated for their somewhat eccentric ways, ignored until they themselves had threatened Hinsa and other Amakosa lifestyles. Sir so Benjamin Durbin responded to the affidavits, ordering James Reed and his Khoi family to Grahamstown in 1835 to face a grilling once he arrived there, the missionary was subjected to odious and blunt racism. There's no other way to put this nicely. Most settler churchmen framed the same narrative, throwing their blinkered poison into his face and those of his family. It was ugly in Grahamstown in March 1835. Military reinforcements had arrived. That cause had retreated. The hotheads in the town became noisy, a powerful mix of hatred, connivance and corruption. Ah, yes, dear friends, that old South African tradition, now fully restored by our latest government, corruption. It rolls off the tongue like a rolling blackout, does it not? The settlers who had found their voice gathered and looked with decided laser-like focus on the recently vacated Koza land, particularly the watered slopes of the Amatola Mountains. Holden Banker wanted this land and wrote that, It was far superior to other parts, far too good for such a race of runaways as the blacks. He used a far more pejorative term at this moment. Even though they were on a war footing, the Grahamstonians decided to light their lamps, shining in the Eastern Cape dark as a sign of their confidence that the Amatosa had been beaten. Charles Lennox Stretch noted these lamps burning brightly and wrote sardonically, if they had kept it as dark as they endeavoured to do their evil deeds, it would have been much better. He was referring to the settlers who were setting up a perfect profiteering business. Lennox Stretch, by the way, was not a Johnny-come-lately liberal. He had arrived in South Africa long before the 1820 settlers and fought in the 1819 Battle of Grahamstown against Nghele the War Doctor as an ensign. He was living alongside the Boers near Hraf-renet, the hardest part of the colony, to make a living. He supped with the Boers, he attended their church, he spoke their language, and married a South African-born woman. But he never slumped into colonial and settler attitudes. Perhaps it was his Irish origin because he was a humanitarian. He was also, by all accounts, one of the better soldiers of this campaign, waged by Durban and Colonel Harry Smith. And yet, he never lost sight of the provocative injustices against the Amatosa. When the settlers' spirit of revenge sputtered into life, once they'd recovered from the shock of the Xhosa invasion, of course, Stretch responded in disgust. So, after many weeks of hesitation, Sir Benjamin de Urban finally decided it was time to move into the Amatolas in force. Colonel Smith had been busy in the bush there already, but this was a much bigger army that the British thought would be required to finally subjugate the Xhosa. The urban arrived at the base camp at Fort Wilshire on the 28th of March, 1835, then the lumbering wagons rolled off towards the Amatolas on the 30th, his convoy stretching five miles, which was quite bad because the Amatolas were only 20 miles away. His wagons took up a quarter of the distance to his target. The wagons began to bottleneck when they reached the Kaiskama River crossing. Picture, if you can... One hundred and seventy ammunition and material wagons being dragged up mountains, over rivers, down cliffs, then up the other side. Two thousand men were now marching towards Matkoma and Charlie's ten thousand warriors. Half of the British force was mounted on horses. Despite the fact that the Boers were on their way back from Natal with Hince's blessing, other Boers led this massive convoy towards him from the other direction. Strange thing, history is full of contradictions. An 80-year-old Boer commander, we will hear about more in a moment, and a veteran of the sand campaigns of the 1700s and other battles led this multinational army. Behind the few hundred Boers were the white officers of the Cape Mounted Regiment and their men next, the dark green caps and jackets blending into the landscape, puffing their little clay pipes. Behind them the Koi Koi conscripts who had been forced or joined the war voluntarily. Many examples of both. They were dressed in a motley collection of woolen garments, which the causer had refused to buy from the merchants in Grahamstown, who now sold these almost unwearable bits of clothing to the British army for a fat profit. There's always a merchant around making money when a war is afoot. Governor Durbin's wagon train was next, with Harry Smith and his guards, 24 armed Boers protecting the might of the British army. Somewhat ironic. Eight settler trackers joined these men, their brown hats bedecked with leopard-skin bands and jaunty ostrich feathers. Next in line, men of the 72nd Highlanders, their pups piping a mountain piebroch, uniforms newly redesigned for African conditions. Their forage caps had been fitted with large, broad peaks. Their cross-belts and black cartridge boxes left behind in place of light-skin pouches attached to their belts. In their backpacks, a blanket and a canteen. But... They still wore their red jackets, brightly visible against the greens and browns of the felt. That was part of the plan. Let the Amatrosa see how many there were, how they marched side by side, a phalanx of red. To be feared, hoped Harry Smith, as he looked back at them. Each of the 170 wagons was drawn by 20 oxen, adding to the sheer might and splendour. The wagons alone stretched for two miles. If you're going to invade a person's territory, you'd better come prepared. And the British had taken three months to prepare. What were their orders? This was where some confusion lay. They were going to push the Amatosa out of the Amatolas and then break up what Durbin called their combination. This implied many things, given that the enemy was elusive and ready for a scrap, with greater knowledge of the battlegrounds, faster moving, more agile, more motivated... Dama were hanging about close by, and at times challenged the British soldiers to come hither and fight, particularly when the patrols rode out to recon the territory or to fetch corn and pumpkins from the abandoned Cosa homesteads. This campaign was going to be hit and miss, and more miss than hit, in spite of the vast number of men and material lumbering across the eastern Cape Felt. The urban, with Smith's advice, had broken up the army into four divisions, led by Henry Somerset and a one-armed colonel called John Petty of the 72nd Highlanders. Yes, a peninsula-campaign vet, and, of course, yet another, Major William Cox, and then the fourth, the much-respected Boer Field Commandant, Stephanus van Weyck. Colonel Richard England, the not-so-brave, had been left behind in Grahamstown. The first thing was to send two divisions into the Amatolas. the other two, which were entirely made up of cavalry, which waits in the open country below to stop Damakosa from escaping. But it wasn't so simple. The countryside is vast. The numbers of British and Boers small. What hope, really, did they have of trapping the Kosa warriors who could move 30 kilometers a day easily, trotting along with their hands full of dried corn in their little leather bags, while the British dragged their two-ton wagons across rocky terrain going at 8 kilometers a day if they were lucky. Nika's birthright, the Amatolas beckoned with the misty mountains. The top peaks often covered in snow in winter, sometimes the pasturages below blighted by drought. As the British approached, it was the best time of the year. Crisp mornings, warm days, green, verdant hillsides. No sign of the tough, dry conditions that often swept this territory. On the 2nd of April, Durban began moving his troops up the slopes at midnight their heavy tread and rattling of pouches, rumbling roll of the cannon wheels, loud in the dark. Above, the Kosa fires burned, their dogs howled and barked. birds shrieked and rose as this army clambered upwards. Then shouts of alarm as Amit Kosa sentries spotted the two divisions rising up the slopes, and at dawn they reached the first summit, many standing in the sunshine that burnt off the mist, trying to warm up. This is magnificent countryside, the sights compensated for the rigour of the march. Captain James Alexander was rather stunned. The mountain glens through which we wound were picturesque and beautiful to a degree far beyond all power of expression, he exclaimed. Forgetting bullets and assegais, I halted and gazed around continually in a silent transport of emotion and delight. Whenever there was a clearing in the forest, a cause of homestead could be found. As they stumbled on an open valley, there was the imizi six or seven huts clustered together facing east. The garden corn was eight foot high, huge pumpkins lay on the ground, everything deserted. The British set fire to each and every garden, every home, marching steadily through these stunning forests, leaving a burning trail of destruction as they went. Then the Amacoza warriors appeared on an opposite ridge across a mountain saddle just out of cannon range, gesturing with their assegais, shouting at those below to move, and then challenging the soldiers to come and fight. The challenge was well received, and the divisions broke up into smaller columns, seeking the routes across the hills to confront these warriors, the bullocks lowing as they pulled the heavy cannon. Then they fired, shells hissing and exploding in the air, flinging balls inside the mountain slopes, a terrible shrapnel all pomp and display of power. However, it became apparent rather quickly to the average soldier in these divisions that the war they were fighting was going to take longer and be far more difficult than they envisioned. They could not find the enemy. It was the Amat dictating terms. It was an almost futile march up these magnificent slopes. After a night of marching and a day of firing cannon, it also became apparent that not a single Kosa had been killed or wounded. That night, Lennox Stretch and his company were descending once more towards the two other divisions stationed at the foot of the Amatolas, behind a force of Boers when they suddenly came under fire. Musket balls peppered the bush about them. It was the Boers firing blindly in the dark. Stretch's men wanted to return fire. Instead, he managed to double-quick march them away. One of the corps of guides, his man in leopard-skin hat, was wounded. The Boers had a habit of firing into the bush whenever they heard something... They had a visceral fear of the dark. The governor promises to hang the Boers who shot the unfortunate fellow last night, wrote Holden Bunker in his diary. Everybody more afraid of being shot by the Boers than by the blacks. Some thought the Boers should be disarmed. The tension between the Boers and the English was palpable. The British soldiers were not entirely happy to be travelling with men they believed had been closer to the Amat than they let on. The Boers were reluctant to take risks on behalf of the British Empire. The British officers accused them of cowardice. They had been ordered into commandos, these men, whether they liked it or not. Harry Smith was his usual blunt self as he sat composing a letter to his beloved Joanita. I have some arrant cowards. The Boers of the old commanders talk of the glories of former times when the blacks had only assegais. The enemy was now armed with muskets and firing pot-shots at the British during the day. "'But now they have a few guns which they use very badly, may near funks. There are, however, some very fine fellows amongst them,' he admitted. "'Like all groups of soldiers, there are some who would be heroes and some who would not.' The fighting that had been going on now for some months revealed both sides were learning. The British and the Boers were figuring out what to do in night-fighting in thickets, while the Amacosa were figuring out what to do with this musket. And as always, the Koi, Koi were the most effective fighters inside the bush. They were the eyes and ears, and could pick out possible enemy lurking behind a tree. They ran towards gunfire. They are reckless people, light-hearted, light-made, and hardy, wrote James Alexander. The settlers were fearful of the Koi, always believing they'd break ranks and head off to fight for the Kosa instead. So it was an extremely strange army that was clumped together in mutual suspicion, resenting each other, trying to fight a war where nothing was really happening except for the destruction of civilian homes and the seizure of their cattle. Huge herds began to congregate as the army rolled on, and the soldiers kept a wary eye on these. Sometimes they stampeded. Thousands of cattle running towards you is no fun at all, and the noise and din of these beasts drove some of the troopers to distraction. This was worsened by the Amakosa, who took to running up and down the Amatola slopes in full view, calling out, You are not men, but children. We are warriors and chiefs. What these warriors didn't know was that their great chief, Hinsa, was going to find out soon enough just how brutal soldiers like Smith and Cox and Alexander could be. More by that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head over to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.